This is an ABC podcast. Countrywide on ABC Radio. I'm absolutely calling on the Deputy Prime Minister to pay attention to his own report. Growers work from sun up and sun down, so... Countrywide. We need to speak to these growers one o'clock in the morning. And to actually act on behalf of the farmers. We're going to get it from the Yanks or the French or whoever. So let's get our foot in the door and let's be the first. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello and welcome to Countrywide. I'm your host, Bridget Herman. Today on the show, the federal government has backed a bid which will help farmers reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. They're the goats that have claimed Great Barrier Reef Island as their own, and locals want you to eat them. And could farmed crocodiles in northern Australia be chomping down soon on a plant-based diet? We are trying to work on uh, a vegetable protein-based diet. The American alligator and Nile crocodile have been soybean-based and corn-based for years, similar to dog uh, diets. That's all coming up, but first, to meat. China has relisted three Australian meat plants that were delisted because of COVID trade sanctions. The Australian Lamb Company, otherwise known as ALC at Colac in Western Victoria, JBS Brooklyn in Melbourne's West and Tees Naracourt in South Australia all voluntarily stopped sending meat to China in July 2020, obeying China's protocols and in a move replicated by similarly affected meat processors around the globe. A number of meat export establishments do remain suspended, with the Department of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries working with China's customs agency to resolve these technical impediments to trade. Patrick Hutchinson from the Australian Meat Industry Council says the suspension of the meatworks has cost the trade hundreds of millions of dollars. He's welcomed the news that they can now resume trade with China. You know, it's it's been a long uh, it's been a long haul, and we're certainly. Uh, by no means over it yet, but it's a it's a good start. What's the value of the lost exports, you think, from these three abattoirs? It, it's often hard to pinpoint, and the reason being is because we are an inverse manufacturer. So we take a whole, we disassemble it, and we sell all the parts. And when we sell all those parts is that um, they can go, uh, you know, one animal can provide uh, product to the domestic market. It can go to uh, the US. It can go to uh, to China and all to the Middle East. Conservatively, in 2019, the trade was worth in beef three billion, uh, and beef and lamb uh, was worth three billion. So these players in that market, uh, probably in lamb, were were up there. So their their loss in access they made up in other areas. But certainly their loss in, in, in access um, probably made up about, oh, you know, roughly across the board, maybe about between 5 to 10% of trade. So, um, And the others that are still remaining uh, probably make up another 25% in that trade. So it is not insubstantial by any stretch of the imagination. A number of Australian abattoirs remain suspended from trade with China. Has the federal government given you any indication that that trade is about to resume? No, they have not. Three and a half years blocked out of the most valuable market for Australian red meat. Is that really an acceptable situation? Look, China undertook this based on their own legislative requirements. This was not an economic uh, sanction. This was a sanction based on technical uh, their own technical programs that they have within China. 
it came at a time that everybody else was also feeling this uh, these trade sanctions. Um, but it is difficult in in our sector, and for this issue, it is difficult for us to say that this was part of the overall trade coercion because it was a technical uh, scenario, and they actually publish when uh, facilities um, have failed in technical areas in the past. So we did everything that we could to provide them the evidence. What was the major problem in here was the fact that we then had no dialogue. So when Australia was frozen out of any dialogue, be it with um, government to government from a ministerial level or from a um, departmental regulator level, there was no conversation. So whilst that happens, they're not reviewing anything and any evidence that we provide them. So obviously now they've gone and started that process and now we're here. So has it taken too long? Obviously it has. Obviously the relationship has had the major uh, reaction to it. Um, and we're just hoping that now it gives us the opportunity for this to be cleaned up and also reset ourselves to where we were back in 2017 and have a number of others that are still waiting to get their licence to obtain their licence. Patrick Hutchinson from AMIC speaking with Kath Sullivan. Taking you now to the Global Climate Change Conference COP28. Reducing meat production will help meet global environment goals, says a food systems roadmap released at the conference. The roadmap from the Food and Agriculture Organisation was released on the COP28 President's Day dedicated to food, agriculture and water. National Farmers Federation President David Jahinke was at the conference. He says he was there to deliver the message that production shouldn't be compromised in efforts to reach climate targets. It's yesterday being the first Ag Day, we had numerous events that we both sat on panels for and gave presentations at, as well as uh, even joining a protest to make sure that agriculture and farmers were recognised in the conversation around climate change and the fact that we are both the most exposed industry and the industry that needs the most engagement to come up with solutions as well as discuss what options there are for us to participate in the global climate change discussion. This climate conference promised to focus on food systems and agriculture. Do you think that agriculture got its day in the spotlight as promised or do you think it's been overshadowed at all by some of the other negotiations? Look, it was excellent that we have had a day. It was an excellent that we were able to promote both what agriculture does and can do within the climate change discussion. However, there was a lot of other conversations going on and I don't think we quite got the cut through that we would have liked but uh, saying that if we weren't there, if we weren't promoting what agriculture can do, um, I dare say that we would have been completely lost in the conversation. And you are on your way out of Dubai as we speak. What was the message, though, that you went to deliver? Oh, it was very simple for us. It was the fact that agriculture should be included in both the climate system itself because we are identified as one of the major emitters. So let's actually put ourselves onto the stock take, let's put ourselves into the discussion around what are the opportunities in agriculture, but then also what are some of the challenges and be quite upfront that, quite honestly, if we're going to spend carbon, if you look at the carbon outputs of the different industries, you should be spending agriculture because we are the one one system that can both draw carbon out of the environment. And yes, we, we do emit carbon as well, but we also produce food. And if there's going to be anything that we 
produce that's more important than food. Um, uh, well, I doubt there's anything more important than food. Therefore, that's why carbon should be um, allowed to be used in our system. So for us, it is getting that message that agriculture is important and that we have that dual role of uh, both producing food and also being able to work within a cycling carbon system. The Food and Agriculture Organisation re- released the first of a, a three-part roadmap on the Food, Agriculture and Water Day at COP28. Uh, the roadmap says that there will need to be some production shifts in order t- for the world to meet climate targets. How was this roadmap received by the agricultural community there? Well, we're very clear that we don't want to see any reducing of production. We want to see that farmers can still get on with the business of farming, but doing it with the latest technology and the best research at hand. And this is the part that we've also been trying to um, keep promoting is that Australian farmers are very advanced in our processes. We have adopted a lot of great technologies and, and techniques. We've already done a lot of work and that that should be included in that conversation. We we feel that especially being in a developed country, the additionality request of agriculture shouldn't stop us from producing food. And there is only so much more that we can give. David Jahinke, National Farmers Federation President, speaking there with Fiona Broom. As COP28 wrapped up, an agreement on a framework for adapting to climate change was also passed. It'll encourage countries to have national plans and coordinate their climate change action. The goal is to improve health, food and water and the environment, as well as address poverty and protect cultural heritage. I'm Bridget Herman, bringing you all the news about your food and where it comes from. From the top end to Tassie, countrywide on ABC Radio. Lab-grown quail could soon be on the menu after the company behind the meat product cleared the first hurdle to selling it in Australia. The food safety regulator for Sands has declared Val's cell-cultured quail product safe to eat. It's the first cell-based meat product to be reviewed in Australia and that judgment is now open for public feedback. This follows the US Agriculture Department's approval earlier this year of California-based firms Upside Foods and Good Meat to sell chicken meat labelled as lab-grown or cell-cultivated in that country. But cell-based meat company Vow says it isn't planning on muscling in on traditional Australian livestock markets. Vow's senior government affairs lead, Nick Chilton, says the company also has an application in with Singapore's food regulator and plans to sell their product there next year. So at this stage, we're about halfway through the process. So far, Fazan's results, as they concluded that it's safe, like we have, and the tests that they've done, which are now made public, show that we've met the criteria, we've met all the uh, limits and the thresholds that Fazan's has set. Now we get to move into the public consultation part of the process. As part of the assessment, Fazan's has also made labelling recommendations and they've suggested that cell cultured could be used on labelling. What do you make of that suggestion? Look, we were expecting that and uh, we, we're actually quite happy with that. We recognise that this is a completely new product and we want consumers to be aware of what it is. Uh, we want them to understand it's made in a different process. Uh, and we think cell cultured is a, is a really fair middle ground, um, given there's a few terms floating out there. Given some of the concerns that have previously been out there for plant-based proteins, particularly in terms of using uh, meat nomenclature, we're very keen to be on the front foot of this and, and communicate to the, the farming community and the, 
broader livestock and meat industry that we don't want to pursue the same uh, strategy. We want to make sure it's very clear for customers uh, exactly what this product is, noting that it'll be a few years before this is in retail shelves in Woolies or Coles or anything like that. Uh, we're a bit down the track for that, but I think important at this point in time to, to set the tone and, um, and we're, we're, we're really supportive of that. Are you after that sort of supermarket market or are you looking to, to move into different markets such as uh, high-end restaurants? Yeah, so our, our starting point is in is in fine dining. Uh, so we also have an application uh, with the Singaporean Food Agency. Uh, we expect pending regulatory approval later this year or early next year, we expect to be selling in Singapore uh, in uh, 2024. And that's in the fine dining context. And, and so you referred to your process there earlier. What is your process? The process and the product have been judged safe by Fizans. Uh, so what is your process, your production process? What we do is we take a, if it's from a mammal, it's usually a biopsy or from fish and uh, some fish and, and birds, usually from an egg. Um, we take the cells that repair meat, uh, connective tissue and fat cells. Then we differentiate them and try and identify those cells that uh, might give unique attributes to that species of animal uh, and those that will grow well in uh, in suspension. Um, so uh, kind of like your blood vessels, uh, your, your blood cells do, they grow in suspension. We take those, we feed them the nutrients that they would get in the uh, animal's body uh, if they're growing regularly. Uh, and we do that in a controlled, food-safe, sterile environment uh, in a big thing, big tank, essentially, called a bioreactor. Uh, and then we uh, we harvest those cells and then we turn them into delicious food products. So it's, it's about as simple as that. I mean, there's a lot of complex science beneath that, um, but at a basic level, that's that's kind of the process. For some people, this development with Fazans is really exciting. For others, uh, it's a little bit daunting. Is cultured meat the future of food or do you think that's making too much of it? We, we recognise as a, as a thing for uh, a lot of people, and I'm, look, I've come from the country, I'm a meat eater. Most of us are meat eaters here, and that probably differentiates us from every other cultured meat company out there that I'm aware of. Uh, and so we're kind of really keen to articulate that we have a slightly a very different vision from um, the kind of cultured meat sector more broadly. So a lot of those other companies, they're perspective is that it's replacing animal agriculture, that it's looking at chicken and beef and pork, the, the, the animals we already consume and love. Our view is that that doesn't make a lot of sense. We we love eating the meat that we produce in Australia and New Zealand. We think it's delicious, it's high quality, it's sustainable, and we want to keep doing that. We have no intention to replace animal agriculture or to compete against it, which is why we've been using this technology to create new meats or meats that are harder for most people to get. So we're trying to diversify the options available for meat eaters. In terms of the future of food, we see this as a, an additional protein source uh, building alongside the sustainable farming we have. In terms of global demand for protein, we see this is another way to kind of meet that global demand for protein in a responsible way, um, the same as sustainable uh, farming does, traditional farming in Australia does. That's cell-based meat company Vows, Nick Chilton, ending that report from Fiona Broom. You're listening to Countrywide, across Australia and around the world on ABC Radio. Still to come on Countrywide, plants on the menu for crocodiles and island-dwelling goats on the menu for you. (laughs) Stay tuned for that. But in a move to combat climate change, a bid to create a research centre to help farmers reduce greenhouse gas emissions has been backed by the Australian government. The Zero Net Emissions Agricultural Cooperative Research Centre involves 73 partners across agriculture, education, Indigenous organisations and government. 
but securing federal funding was the final piece in the puzzle for the CRC. Its Interim Chief Executive, University of Queensland Professor Matthew Morell, says the research program will be industry-led. This is not a case of a bunch of scientists sitting in a room thinking, gee whiz, this would be great to do. There's more industry has to say, yep, we see a real imperative to do this. How can we then co-design a program of research and training and innovation to address that target? So while we had some ideas, of course, about the research that needed to be done, the first step for us was really to go out and talk to industry and say, are you interested? And we were overwhelmed by the positive response. So who is involved with the CRC? The CRC uh, brings together a really extraordinary set of partners. So we have all six state governments in the Northern Territory. We have 10 of our leading universities. We have 16 major uh, industry players across Australia. And then we have another coalition of uh, 43, I think it is, small to medium-sized enterprises, grower groups, Indigenous enterprises, uh, who have all signed up to this CRC bid. The CRC has received federal government funding. What does that signify for the work you're trying to do? The federal government and through um, the Department of Industry, Minister Husick has committed $87 million over 10 years to this bid. The requirement of the federal government is that that sum be matched by the partner fund. So there's about $175 million of of cash co-investment in this initiative. What that allows us to do is to have a critical mass to be able to bring major players together in Australia to do research that's both going to hit the ground running and also more ambitious research that solves some of the more intractable problems in this area. It will also act uh, as a coordinator and a convener of research and industry engagement in this space across Australia. So it's a big problem, obviously. This is one one of the greatest problems of our time is to address the climate change. And so we're very heartened by the strength of of support for this bid. Interim Chief Executive of the Zero Net Emissions Agricultural CRC, Professor Matthew Morell, speaking to Callie Buchanan. From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio. I'm Bridget Herman with you for the show today. It's an iconic industry of Northern Australia that contributes more than $100 million to the economy. But recently, crocodile farming has come under the microscope, with the federal government reviewing the industry's code of practice. Crocodiles are farmed in Australia for their meat and their skins, which are used in handbags and other leather products. Against the backdrop of increased scrutiny, AgriFutures held a webinar this week about what the industry is doing to guarantee its future, including feeding crocodiles more than just meat. Max Rowley has more. It's big business in northern Australia, producing saltwater crocodile skins for luxury fashion retailers like Louis Vuitton. 
The primary market uh, is the high-end fashion houses of Europe um, to produce luxury handbags and shoes and such. And I think based on the last statistics, Australia is producing 8% of, uh, of the world crocodilian skins. That's Sally Isberg, a crocodile husbandry expert and Darwin-based consultant for the Territory's croc farming industry. And she's been looking at how the sector can thrive into the future as changing fashions shift market demands. The current demand is for uh, smaller belly skins, which are around 25 to 35 centimetres in belly width. But in the past, the demand was for much larger skins when larger style handbags were in fashion. This week, she launched the industry's first research and development plan with AgriFutures, which looks at everything from new markets and value adding to feeding crocs a vegetarian diet. We are trying to work on a vegetable protein-based diet. The American alligator and Nile crocodile have been soybean-based and corn-based for years, similar to dog diets. But our salties are the divas of the crocodile world and are not quite as accepting of, of anything that we've presented to them with, with, with complete reliability at this stage. So maybe no vegan salties yet. But sustainability seems to be a key focus for the industry. So in the development of this RDNE plan, we first sent a survey out to uh, you know, 56 industry members, including downstream users of the product, so tanneries, manufacturers, cosmetic companies, so we could get a really good understanding of what the challenges the industry faces at all levels of the supply chain. The highest ranking priority from the survey was environmental sustainability and social licence. And that's likely because croc farming has come under fire from animal welfare groups. And in July, the federal government announced a review into the industry's code of practice, which oversees everything from collecting eggs or catching wild crocs to breeding them in captivity and how the apex predators are killed. Here's Federal Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek speaking at the time. It is a growing industry. We have more science. We've got new techniques. It's time to update the code of practice. But Sally Isberg says she welcomes the review. Uh, the fact that we have a code of practice for the crocodile industry, which is actually currently in the process of being reviewed, is considered a major strength as it shows our commitment to improving crocodile welfare. The industry already shows significant environmental sustainability from the perspective of the sustainable use program and the, and the in the wild egg harvest and the strong, healthy wild populations that we have in northern waterways. On farm, however, it was considered really important that we understand the, the businesses from a life cycle analysis perspective, as well as making continual reductions in water and energy use, as well as carbon emissions. Croc consultant Sally Isberg, who was a speaker at this week's AgriFutures webinar looking at the future of croc farming in Australia. <laughs> well, they started out as a life-saving food source for stranded sailors, but now a unique group of island-dwelling goats is in need of their own rescue. And as it turns out, that heritage as a tasty meal could be their saving grace, as Abby Holter reports. In the late 1800s, sailors navigating Queensland's coast faced a significant peril. Those attempting to sail the treacherous Great Barrier Reef without maps often found themselves stranded or wrecked. It was so common, some crews came up with a unique solution to abandon a dozen goats on an island 125 kilometres off the Mackay coast as an emergency food source. 
150 years later, the Percy Island goats are still there. They were put on there um, for meat and milk for stranded sailors. And to this day, sailors still pull into West Bay and can go and kill a goat or have goat's milk or whatever. Diana Barfield from the Queensland Goat Producers Incorporated, or QGoat, says there are now thousands of goats living on the 2,000 hectare island, which is a heritage-listed national park. She says the isolation has created a breed that's not found anywhere else in the world. We had them DNA tested to prove that they weren't related to the Australian rangeland goats, which we have proven. Over 150 years in isolation, they have evolved to their own unique DNA code that is far removed from mainland goats. We're trying to save them from eradication off the island because once the genetic DNA is lost, it's gone forever. It's just amazing what they can do. Special little goat. Yes, very special. (laughs) Do they look any different or do they act any different to any other goat? Yeah, they do cycle a little bit differently and they are very, very family orientated. Quite often they have their own coloured families and they, they seem to stick to their own areas on the island and their own colours, which is quite, quite amusing. Despite their heritage breed status, under Queensland law, the goats are considered a restricted invasive species, which means they can be culled if numbers become a problem. So advocates have come up with a creative intervention to save them eating them. And true to their heritage as a food source, QGOAT member Louise Drew says they're perfect for eating and milking. We have slaughtered quite a few and used their meat. Their meat is a high quality. Um, We have a high meat to bone ratio, more so than the other breeds. So a little uh, Percy Island goat, you'd probably dress out about 20 to 25 kilos, which is good for a small family to put in the freezer. <laughs> so we're trying to show people that they're worth something. Once an animal is worth something, it, people think they're worthwhile saving. And that's what we're about, about saving these uh, beautiful little animals. They're not bad little milkers. They can produce uh, uh, about two litres a day. Um, I've managed to get out of some of these little animals without really trying. I'm an ex-dairy goat breeder. We've been eating them for quite a few years so and I've tried all the different breeds of goats and I find these the tastiest. Isn't that terrible? (laughs) And they are rather cute. Catherine Radcliffe has spent 12 years living on Percy Island. She says the goats are an integral part of the history and tourism of the island. Percy Island is famous for the goat stews and the barbecues down at the beach, so that's how we utilise the animals that we control. And it's just marvellous that the herds that Diane and Louise have are really starting to be recognised as an important food source by the wide population. Katrina Drew, Louise Drew's daughter, is incorporating Percy Island goats into the menu at her cafe just north of Bukai. She says there's a noticeable difference in taste between regular goats and those from the island. Because I was born and bred with goats and we ate goat quite a bit, um, as, as as children, and I do think that that is there definitely seems to be a bit more leanness to it. It doesn't seem to be as fatty, and the meat doesn't seem to be as strong as well. Like the fat 
doesn't seem to be because the fat usually is where they hold a lot more of that stronger taste, stronger flavour to it. And they do have a lot more of a darker meat in a way. One of the reasons why we actually wanted, I wanted to bring it in into the cafe, not just for the cafe side of things, but actually to uh, celebrate the, the goats themselves because they are completely unique to any other breed, their just their hardiness and their personalities, just to have something a bit different, something that is local, and and also promoting it so that people understand what's actually happened in the past and why it's um, been that way, why the Percys were put on the island, and also sort of why we've sort of DNA tested them because they are so unique. I think it's great, especially for adding it into the Indonesian and um, Indian and African community they do use goat a lot and at least now that they can be accessible for the local community. Yep, that's my microphone. <laughs> that was chef and owner of the gift shed Katrina Drew ending that report from Abby Halter along with a very hungry goat it sounds like. Well that's all from Countrywide this week I'm Bridget Herman. You can hear more stories about your food and where it comes from on the ABC Listen app. That's all for now. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.